Dear Father, thank you for the joy to be a part of this fellowship and the chance to return after a few weeks away. Thank you, Father, for your guiding hand, for your grace and for your mercy, for calling men and women to be a part of something that perhaps from the outside, many in the world would question how it could even be worth the time. And yet, Father, we know so well there is no better time than to be at your feet and in study of your word. There's no better place, Father, than to be in the company of the saints made whole in one by the spirit. And there is no better time, Father, than the time you've given us while we await your return, the return of your son, so that we would be prepared for all that comes afterward. We endeavor, Father, to study something this morning you've prepared for us so that we would know it, for you're not a God of confusion. And yet, Father, by our limited understanding and our weaknesses in the flesh, we may struggle at times to know the truth of what you've provided. But, Father, with your spirit working in us, we can... We can go back go past those barriers and we can understand fully what you choose to reveal. And I pray, Lord, that would be your will this morning to reveal the truth fully so that we may leave in one mind. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, let's get right into it. Last week we studied or last time we were here, we studied in this chapter, chapter six, the author confronting us with a challenge. And the challenge was whether we are maturing in our faith as we should, as Christians. You remember at the end of chapter 5, the writer sounded a bit frustrated with the audience he was writing to because they appeared to lack the kind of spiritual progress that is expected of every believer. The writer, at the point in his discussion, felt forced to pause in explaining Melchizedek and the order of Melchizedek and how Christ is the culmination of that order. And he paused because he said his audience had not done its homework. Those are my words. But his concern was they had not matured to the point in their walk as Christians where something as complicated as the order of Melchizedek could be explained successfully without the possibility of them misunderstanding it or becoming confused over it. So what he did at the end of chapter 5 is he diverted his attention away from that discussion, if you remember, and he diverted it toward a discussion about the danger of failing to pursue spiritual maturity through a dedicated study of Scripture. And that's an important detail we don't want to overlook. He has called out the failure to spend enough time in study of Scripture as the cause for their spiritual immaturity, and now he's going to go into a discussion of the dangers of it. So as we got into the beginning of chapter 6 last time, we saw the writer list six areas of Christian knowledge, which he said were the elementary teaching about the Christ. Notice he didn't call them the elementary teachings about Jesus. He called them the elementary teachings about the Christ, which means these were basic teachings that predated even the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. These are basics of faith which you could find even in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the Messiah. These are basic truths of Scripture. And then when we looked at that list, those six things, you notice we found many topics that we said even now in the church today, 2,000 years later, still pose a challenge for some Christians, still are unknowns. Teachings we said about washings and spiritual gifting and resurrection and the judgment that's coming. These these concepts that for many Christians today are still outside their understanding. So as we began the chapter last time, we were convicted, I was convicted, I hope some were anyway, by what constitutes basic Christian maturity. If these are the basics, according to this writer, 
and yet we acknowledge that many believers today are still ignorant on some of these concepts, then what does it say about the maturity of our own church, of the church universal, about those we know? Perhaps we ourselves are still in need of the ABCs of our faith, as the writer called them. Perhaps we're also in danger of making the same mistake that this early church was making, and that is of not progressing to a sufficient degree in their spiritual maturity, for they lacked some basic knowledge of Scripture. And if that is true, if not for all, perhaps at least for some, if that's true, then it would tell us we're also subject to the same consequences that this writer says this church might be subject to. If we share the same concerns, we should also be interested in what are the consequences so we may avoid them. But up to this point, the writer hadn't explained the consequences. We're still waiting to find out what happens when you don't mature in this way. Well, that's the next part of this chapter. And it constitutes the third warning of the letter of Hebrews. We said there are five warnings that come up through the course of this letter. They're very important moments in the letter. They sort of divide the letter out. We're at one of those important moments. The third and perhaps the most challenging of the warnings in this letter. So as we dive into the section this morning, I want to make sure we haven't left something behind that we have to have if we're going to understand this warning properly. And what I mean by that is we have to have the writer's context firmly fixed in the foreground of our mind as we look at the text. We need to remember that where the writer began, and he began in back in chapter 5, as we said, in 5.12, to be specific, when he told this group they ought now to be teachers of the word. You remember that? That's where he diverged out of his conversation and into this chastisement. And he chastised these people. He says, you know, you ought to be teachers by now, but you you aren't even able to handle solid food. You need the milk of God's word. That is to say, you're still needing simplistic, unchallenging ideas and teaching from God's word. You're not able to move on. Like we talked about in the movie quote, you can't handle the truth. You can't move on to something a little more challenging. All right. That was where he started. Then in chapter six, as he opens in that chapter, look what he says at the beginning of chapter six. He asks this same group to press on to maturity in their faith. And we ended the introduction in verse three, where he then ominously declared that these brethren will mature if God permits. And with that, the writer then takes up the warning, which is where we're going to go this morning, the, the consequence of what happens if you don't press on to maturity. Now, why did I go back through all of that again? Because I want you to note that throughout this discussion from the end of five into six, the writer has been focused on what? The consequences of failing to mature as a Christian. He has never veered off of that topic. Therefore, we have to understand the warning that's about to follow now as a warning for who? For that same audience, Christians who fail to mature. That's his subject. That's his concern. That's the reason he's taken up this warning. Believers, believers who fail to mature as God expects. And to that group, he now issues the warning. And we need to be guided by this. Remember, our interpretation of what now follows in this chapter must be constrained by the context of what is under discussion by the author. If we're not constrained by the context, then we're free in an unfortunate way. We'll be free to let our interpretation roam into unhealthy corners. We'll move to the wrong direction in our interpretation. And when you do that, of course, your theology goes with it, which is to say your theology goes off track. Now, we're going to return to the question of the writer's intended audience as we examine the warning. But for now, let's just read what the warning says to this group. Verses four through six. The writer says, for in the case of those 
who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The writer begins this warning with the preposition for, or in Greek you could also translate that word consequently. Consequently. So what he's saying is in the preceding verse, he had said the church will press on to maturity if God permits. And now he says consequently. And by that, he's connecting these two thoughts. So it's important we try to understand how are they connected. The writer begins to describe a certain scenario here, one that he fears that his audience is at risk of encountering. And that scenario begins with a certain group here going through a series of experiences. So let's look at that. He says, first, this group has an experience of enlightenment and enlightenment in the Greek is the word photizo. You probably can tell what other kinds of words we get from that same root. Photizo is where we get photon from, the elementary particle of light. Photon. It it literally just means, in Greek, to be brought into the light. So in John's Gospel, you know, we learn that this idea of being brought into the light is a metaphor, spiritual metaphor, for coming into the knowledge of the Gospel. John says in John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In verse 9 later, he says, There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens, photizo, every man. So Jesus is the light of the world, and that is the light that enlightens men. So this group that the writer is concerned about is a group that shares several experiences, the first of which is they have been enlightened. Next, the writer says this group has tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, to understand what the heavenly gift is in this context, we should note that it comes after being enlightened in the list of things that he presents. They've been enlightened and they've tasted the heavenly gift. And that tasting, notice what it leads to. It leads to being made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is only one heavenly gift mentioned in all the Bible which would fit these criteria, which comes as a consequence of enlightenment and which leads to being made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Paul gives us what that is in Ephesians chapter two in two verses eight, nine. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And not as a result of works, so that no man, no one may boast. Paul says the gift that comes from heaven is the gift of faith in Christ. And that by that gift of faith, we are saved by God's grace. And we know, friends, that faith follows an encounter with the light of Christ. You, you, you have to know of Christ, be enlightened to who he is, to the fact that he called himself Messiah. You have to know that as a natural function of faith. Faith has an object. You say to someone, I have faith, the natural question is faith in what? You can't just say the word without an object. It's a meaningless statement. I love to hear that from people all the time, by the way. I'm a person of faith. Every time I hear that, I want to ask them, in what? Yourself? 
The universe, a tree, the lottery. What do you have faith in? You can't just say it and think that that somehow settles the question. It just begins the question. So when we hear that someone has the gift of faith, as Paul describes it, we have to ask, what is that faith in? And of course, that faith is in Christ Jesus as Lord. That's the enlightenment. That's the light of the world. So you start with an enlightenment. Jesus as Lord. You begin with that. Next, you move to the gift of faith so that I can accept that truth. And then from the gift of faith, where does that lead? Notice the writer says, then that person is made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. The arrival of the Holy Spirit is something God makes happen. And that verb tense is very purposeful and you should not overlook it. The arrival of the Holy Spirit into the life of a believer is not an optional event. It does not require that you request it. It's not something that you have to hope might happen. It is the manner of salvation. No one speaking by the Holy Spirit says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. It happens by God's power that you receive the Holy Spirit, which comes as a function of the faith that God gives, which is the result of the enlightenment of Christ. It is all his, which is why Paul says no man may boast. You cannot boast that you discovered Christ. He was revealed to you. You cannot boast that you have faith in Christ. That faith is a gift. And you cannot boast that you have the Spirit of God, for that was the deposit God made as a function of his promise in Christ. It is God, God, and all God. That's what grace means. That's how the Bible can speak to us about having been dead in our trespasses, then made alive in Christ. A dead corpse cannot raise itself, not physically, not spiritually. And so, in this list so far, what do we find? A group that has been enlightened, a group that has the gift of faith, and a group that has been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the writer says, this group has tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, that statement has been analyzed seven ways to Sunday in the commentaries. If I were to send you off on an analysis, you would never come back from that investigation. And it usually revolves around this interesting choice of words, tasting. Never ceases to amaze me how wrapped around the axle people get on that one word. Tasting, it's like he's taking it in, but he didn't swallow. There's these strange over-analysis of the word that's trying to assume the writer's getting cute here. Friends, it's pretty obvious. He's just speaking in poetic language. And he's simply saying they have only sampled the word of God. They have only sampled the power of the ages to come. You cannot eat all of this. It's impossible, and I don't mean reading every word. Yes, you can read every word, but that doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the wisdom and the power of what's in this book, does it? That's like the person who would tell me after I say I'm going to start a Bible study on some particular book of the Bible, and they would tell me, oh, I've already read that book. As if to settle the issue and say, well, I don't need to study it. I've already got it all up right here. That's someone who doesn't understand the Word of God at a fundamental level. There is infinite depth to the Word of God. The same verse read a thousand times will never exhaust what it can teach us concerning God as the Spirit applies it. And in that sense, we've only tasted the Word of God. Similarly, the powers of the age to come, that's a reference to the kingdom age, to that time in the future when we will live in eternal bodies without sin, and in the full light of Christ's presence, and in the full knowledge of God. And in that sense, once again, the word taste is a perfect description of what you know of it now. You, you have just begun to understand what the power of that age is like. By our faith, we've only tasted of that coming age. We have the indwelling of the Spirit. That gives us a certain degree of understanding. We have spiritual gifts. That is a forerunner to what we'll know in our eternal 
body, our incorruptible body. We know of God's love, certainly, and we have a hope of resurrection. But that's just a taste. Isn't that a glorious thing to understand that even as good as it may seem to be in the Lord today and all that comes with it, it's just a taste of what's coming. It's not to suggest that we have some lesser experience. It's not to suggest we haven't crossed some threshold and become a true Christian yet. It isn't to suggest that somehow we're just dabbling in it and we haven't committed ourselves. That's the kind of poor interpretation, to say it kindly, that has arisen out of a failure to bring the context with you in this conversation. He's been talking about believers, but immature believers. They have these as their basic experience. Everything in this list is a description of a believer who has entered into a relationship with Christ through grace, by faith, as God appoints. The issue is not whether they are Christian or not. In fact, he sets up his warning in such a way that it's obvious he's talking to believers so that we won't miss that he's talking to us. What he's concerned about are people who have entered into the Christian experience but have not matured, are not pressing on, and he's chastising them. For that failure. And he begins his warning by simply describing you have all shared in a common experience of faith. Now, if someone were to assume at this point, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a moment. If someone were to assume at this point that the writer has suddenly and quite inexplicably veered off of topic from talking to believers and for whatever reason has decided to shift into a discussion of unbelievers for some moment, if someone were to throw that idea out for a minute. This list all by itself would set you back on the right path because the experiences on this list are completely foreign to unbelievers. There is no touch point in this list that even begins to make sense if you're talking about an unbeliever. For example, unbelievers are never enlightened, never enlightened. Enlightenment doesn't just mean, you know, the name Jesus. I mean, there's billboards with the name Jesus in the world. That doesn't mean the world's enlightened by him. In fact, John says that men do not enter the light of Christ because they prefer the darkness. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, he says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not, listen, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This isn't a simple matter of intellectual understanding. That's not what enlightenment means. It means putting yourself in the light spiritually. It means going toward it. It's like a moth going to the light. Darkness does not seek the light. Unbelievers are not the moth. They do not go after the light. They see the light turn on and they're like a cockroach. They run from it. Poor analogy, but you kind of get it. So if you're to say, no, this is a list of people who sort of came into the church and hung around the edges for a while, but then walked out the door and they've never truly known the Lord. They were just enlightened for a little while. That's an unbiblical concept. It's not just a bad interpretation. It doesn't fit with Scripture. That never happens. You're either in the light or you're not. You're either attracted to it, such as it will bring you into salvation, or you are opposed to it and repelled by it and you run from it. There is no in-between. Yes, an unbeliever can walk into a church. Absolutely. But if the gospel is presented honestly, consistently, truthfully from God's word, they'll either drop to their knees or run out the door. But they cannot sit in between because Christ said, I come with a sword to divide. That's the power of the gospel. And I'm not talking about places that don't teach the gospel. There are a lot of churches that spend, you know, hour, two hours every Sunday wasting your time with nothing meaningful. An unbeliever can sit in that room all day long. They're not being challenged by the gospel. But if you're challenged by the gospel, if the light turns on, so to speak, you'll either go into the light by the power of the Lord working in your heart or you'll run from it. Furthermore, the list says 
that you have people who have been made aware of the gift of God. Well, friends, unbelievers are simply totally unaware of the gift of God. They never get it. And furthermore, they're never partakers of the Holy Spirit. There's never a moment when an unbeliever has the Holy Spirit and then he's gone the next. That never happens according to Scripture. Nor would an unbeliever ever notice the good things in the Word of God. That's an important distinction. They know of the Bible. They may have even read it. Who knows? But they don't know the good things in it. In fact, the Bible says that the Word of God is foolishness to those who are perishing. And of course, they have no experience with the powers of the age to come. So this writer isn't just saying this group kind of watched the Christian experience or lived it out vicariously through other people or I don't know all the different ways this has been manhandled by people. No, he's speaking here of a common experience of salvation that is only indicative of believers and can never be shared even to a minimum degree with an unbeliever. There is a hard black and white line here in what's being discussed. And by the context, we have to remain in this discussion with an understanding of believers. Friends, if I was the enemy and I wanted to take the power of this message and neuter it, the fastest way to do that is to make you think it's not about you. If you want to ignore the warnings of Hebrews, particularly this one, tell yourself it's about unbelievers and that sort of settles the whole question. I don't care about it anymore, do I? Oh, it's interesting to understand it and intellectually I might have some interest, but I'm not thinking about it in here anymore, am I? That's the power of the enemy's lies when he tells you that this is about some other person who just hangs around and doesn't really get to know the Lord truly. That's why they fell away. No, friends, this is a warning about what can happen to believers. And we're going to get to the consequences here next, and we'll understand that in in the proper way as well. But don't overlook the prospect of this happening to believers who are failing to press on to maturity. For if we do that, the whole purpose in the author writing has just been taken off the page. What a powerful tool by the enemy to make us think it's not about us. Now, as we look at the consequences of remaining immature in verse six, you're going to see even more clearly, I think, that this writer is concerned with believers. At The beginning of the verse, he raises the prospect here in verse six of a Christian falling away. He says, and then falls away. Now, what does it mean? This is really the central question we have to answer if we're going to put everything in its proper understanding. What does it mean for a Christian to fall away? Well, first... We have to know that this writer is speaking about something that a person actually has control over. Wouldn't you agree? It has to be the case that whatever falling away looks like, it's something within your control rather than something that lies outside our control. For example, a believer has no control over their salvation, over their justification, over their standing before God. We've already established it comes by way of a gift through the work of the Holy Spirit made visible in our faith and in our confession. It is not maintained in our hearts by our own power. It is maintained there by the seal of the pledge God gives us through the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. That's why he is there. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, the arrival of faith in our heart produces a degree of spiritual change that is irreversible. According to scripture, Paul says in second Corinthians chapter five, that the believer becomes a new creature, literally a new being, because our old nature, Paul says, the one we received from Adam, that has passed away. It is dead, never to return. I use a simple analogy for this as well. It's like when a butterfly comes out of a cocoon, that caterpillar went in, that butterfly came out. It's not a function of will or of mental assent at that point. There is nothing in the world that can get that butterfly back in that cocoon and reverse the process out the other side. It's impossible. Spiritually, that's what happened to you. 
And I understand it's not something we necessarily can detect. It has to be understood by Scripture. You are new. You are not who you were. Your body has not changed yet, but that's just a function of time. It's coming. But your spirit did. The nature you had when you were born physically went away, and in its place came a new spirit, sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that will never change again, for it cannot change. It's not because your brain decided to be a Christian that you're a Christian. It's because your heart was changed. You notice God always says, believe with your heart. And yet he, being the maker, knows that the organ of the body that thinks is not the heart. It's the brain. But why does he say believe in your heart then? It almost sounds nonsensical. He should have said believe in your brain, shouldn't he? Ah, but that's not how it works. It's a spiritual change. It's something he does to you, which results in a mental change, which we call maturing. Beginning with a confession, going next to baptism, and then on from there. Our faith is a gift produced by the work of the Spirit in our heart. So, friends, when I look at this term, falling away, I have to understand it in the context of what the Bible says about who I am and what I can do. And what the Bible says is I can't change my nature. I couldn't change it coming in. I can't change it going back. So I am who I am by God's grace. Praise the Lord. Now, what can I control that might lead me to either go one direction or another? By falling away, we have to understand it as some aspect of our experience that we can control. And that would limit us to behaviors, thoughts, and attitudes and feelings. Those things lie within our control. And you can see the truth of this reflected in many, many places in the New Testament. In fact, most all of what the New Testament teaches us outside of prophecy is directed to how we behave, how we think, and what our attitudes are as Christians. And with that comes a bunch of exhortation to do the right thing. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, to take every thought captive and to do so to the obedience of Christ. In Philippians, he tells the believer to have the same attitude of self-sacrifice that the Lord possessed. And then to sum it up in Philippians 3, Paul says 3.15, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude And if in anything you have a different attitude, well, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we obtained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Basically, Paul says, you who have been made perfect by faith. Now I want you to have an attitude of living up to that standard in how you behave. It has to be obvious at this point, friends, that when the writer talks about falling away, he's speaking to how we live, how we think how we feel, the choices that lie within our control as Christians. So if we are commanded to live in obedience to Christ, then it stands to reason we have a possibility not to do that, don't we? Why tell us to do something if it's not possible to do the alternative? He's commanding us to move in one direction. Likewise, if the Bible tells us that we are to take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, then it stands to reason we might not. We might let our thoughts just go wherever they want to the disobedience of Christ. And lastly, if the Bible calls us to have healthy attitudes that mirror Christ, then it's likely that we should then have the potential to do the other. Now, friends, when you're moving in the direction Scripture calls you to move, then you are being obedient and you are maturing. When you move in the opposite direction, you are falling away. You are falling away from obedience. You are falling away from the mission that you have to represent Christ. You are falling away from pleasing the Lord. And most importantly, you are falling away from the opportunity to receive eternal reward. That's what the Bible means when it speaks to the believer 
about falling away. And when I look at someone like that, I'm likely to find someone who, in some cases, may not even look like a believer to me anymore because of my limited ability to really understand what's in someone's heart. I try to assess them as best I can. I try to sum them up in my mind. And I think, well, they used to go to church. They don't go anymore. They used to talk about Jesus all the time. Now they act like he's not even real. They used to tell me how much they wanted to please him. And now they only seem to be pleasing themselves. I'm wondering, were they ever a Christian? Well, maybe in some cases they never were. But you also have to leave open the possibility of what this writer is concerned about. That they were and are a Christian, but they are running as hard and as fast from the Lord as they can. And friends, in the power of our flesh, we can run a long way. I like to tell people that the day after I was saved, on the timeline, the day after I was saved, I looked and sounded and thought an awful lot like I did the day before. If you had run into me the day after I was saved and you just saw me in my everyday life, I'm not sure you would have noticed much of a difference. But there was a huge difference. There was an eternal difference in here, but the outworking of it hadn't yet begun to take hold. And it doesn't right away. There's people I get really excited about getting saved at some church service. And a week or two weeks later, they're right back to who they were before. And it's like it never happened. Now, the question is, are they going to move forward? Are they going to stay where they are? And for the one who does move forward for a time, the question still remains. Are you going to keep moving forward or are you going to fall away? And this process Begins The falling away process begins when you neglect the word of God. The writer introduced his third warning by lamenting how this group fails in their pursuit of spiritual maturity in the word. I think it's really important not to separate these two, because if you do, you totally miss the purpose of his concern. The purpose of his concern is not whether you mature or not. Yes, that's. The end result. But the purpose of his concern was, remember, you ought now to be teachers of the word, but you still have need for the elementary teachings of Christ. You still need me to walk you through the ABCs. Why is that at this point in your walk? And because it's that way, I can't talk to you about more difficult things. So, friends, when you do not progress to the meat of God's word, when you stay stuck in milk, you become easily confused. You are susceptible to deception from the enemy. You cannot discern good from evil as the writer said, and therefore you are that much more easily going to be drawn back into matters of the flesh. You are primed to fall away. And when believers make that a pattern, they are in grave danger. In my experience, this is a rule that is so certain, it might as well be called a law of the universe. As I might have an opportunity to counsel Believers, and I find people who, who are troubled by their persistent sin, they're caught in fleshly temptations, they're in the deception of the enemy's lies of one kind or another. It is almost invariably the case that they have a weak or non-existent Bible study life. It is almost invariably the case that that's who they are. And ironically, a lot of them think themselves to be pretty good Bible students because they have this cursory attention to the word of God. The problem is they don't get what the writer here is talking about. It's not a surface understanding of the Bible. It's not I've read the book once. It's daily living in the word of God. It's a recognition that I don't care how often I go back to it, it's still going to have something more for me. And it's in the going back process that I mature. It's in a giving myself over to it that I change. The problem is our standard for what is enough Bible understanding is far lower than God's standard. Warren Wiersbe sums it up this way. He said one of the first symptoms of spiritual regression or backsliding is a dullness toward the Bible. Sunday school class is suddenly dull. The pastor's preaching is dull. Everything spiritual is dull. 
The problem is usually not with the Sunday school teacher or the pastor, but with the believer himself. So what happens to a believer who's entered into Christ's experience and begun their walk of faith and then they fall away into sin or disobedience or apathy or whatever for a lack of study? What comes from that? The writer says this is a serious problem and it may not have a rescue. Do you remember that from verse three? We will pursue maturity, he says in verse three, if God permits. The hard reality is God may not permit a second chance to mature. He may, but he may not. So we take a huge gamble if we begin down this road of Christian maturity and stall out and assume that God's just going to sweep in and rescue us and put us back on the straight and narrow. That is an assumption, and Scripture says don't bet on it. Far better to keep going in the first place. And in verse 6, he explains why he may not get a second chance. He begins by saying, first, it is impossible to renew such a person again to repentance. Now, the word repentance in Scripture can be used in a couple of different ways. The Bible talks first of a repentance leading to salvation. Repent and be saved in that sense. Then the Bible talks secondly about a kind of repentance that follows salvation. This is the daily repentance of a believer where we continually repent of sins in our life so that we can be sanctified and walk more in holiness. In this case, which do you think the writer is talking about? Well, he says it's impossible to do it again, meaning it's a one time only experience. Well, that must mean that he's talking about the repentance that leads to salvation. For we know that the daily repentance of everyday life, that's hardly a one time event. That's a continual command of scripture. But there's only one time you repent to be saved. That's the only time it can happen. And notice this is a repentance that he says leads to renewal. It literally means to be made new. So that would confirm for us that we're talking about the repentance that's associated with being made new. That is the repentance of salvation. So the repentance that leads us to salvation is a moment, a glorious moment that happens one time and only one time. And we can all relate to this truth, right? We can all relate to the fact that then, especially if you were saved as an adult like I was, there's no question that the moment of repentance that leads to salvation is a huge changing point in your life. The gospel arrests us on this course of sin we were on, this self-centered life of serving no one but our flesh. It arrests us and it draws us to something new and it sets us on a whole new course. And for some, it takes hold quickly. For others, it's a slower process. I get that. But it's always that same reset. And by that renewal, we are set free from serving ourselves in sin and to serving God. But like the church in Ephesus that John writes to in Revelation, it is possible to leave your first love. To go through that process and forget it, to lose sight of its significance and to squander that reset that God has granted us through repentance. And by slipping back, falling away to the life of disobedience that we once knew, beginning to look very much like that person we were before we came to know Christ. I'm not losing my salvation and that change done in our heart is a one time trip. You can't reverse it. So we're always in Christ. But friends, if you cannot be unsaved, then by logical extension, you cannot be renewed to repentance again. There's nothing to go through again. You're just there. You also don't get a second wake-up call. And because you don't get a second wake-up call, if you're the prodigal son, if you slip into the mud and you stay there, who's going to yank you out? Oh, certainly God can do it. But will he? So if repentance that leads to renewal can't be repeated, what set of circumstances do you think might draw you back to the Lord 
if you are in disobedience. If you fall away, what will bring you back? Well, that brings us to the second reason why this writer says you shouldn't bet on it. He says, when a person who is in Christ spurns the Lord's grace and goes into this life of disobedience, he says they are crucifying again the Lord by putting him to open shame. The writer is referring to the shame that Christ suffered at the hands of those he came to save when he was crucified on the cross. Remember, he was stripped naked and he was beaten and he was nailed to the cross by people who he was coming to save. It was utter and open shame as he hung on the cross. The great irony of that moment is that Christ endured the shame that he was made to endure for the sake of those who were hammering the nails and tearing his clothing. And likewise, then, the writer uses that as an analogy, and he says that the believer who takes the grace of God and abuses it through that life of sin and disobedience and ungodliness and so on, what they're doing is they're putting the Lord to open shame again, similar to the way that the ones he came to save the first time put him to open shame. Remember, you're an ambassador for Christ. You are his representative before the fallen world. If Christ's own representatives are doing the wrong thing, that's shameful for Christ. That's the concept. The writer says those who fall away should not expect a rescue because you crucify to yourself the Lord again. And of course, he doesn't literally mean we kill Christ again. Christ will never die again at anyone's hand. So obviously he's not talking literally here. He's talking about how we re-crucify him to ourselves. In other words, that the disobedient behavior of our life is treating the Lord with contempt like those who crucified him the first time. In effect, we are repeating the process of shaming him. Now, notice something else here about this comment. Only a believer can bring shame to the Lord. Wouldn't you agree? Once again, if we were entertaining any possibility that this is a conversation about unbelievers, we'd be stuck here at this point. Because an unbeliever who lives in disobedience cannot bring shame to a Lord that he has no relationship with. If it were possible for ungodly people to bring shame to Christ, then the whole world would be shaming Christ continually and he'd have no way to get away from it, right? That makes no sense. No, this is an issue of someone who has a relationship with Christ and it's because he has a relationship with Christ that his behavior now reflects on Christ and when you behave poorly, you shame Christ. It's just that simple. You can't say this about an unbeliever. So now what is the consequence? Look at verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8, he says, For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Now, the writer tells this parable so that we can apply this truth properly. Now, in the parable, you have these items, ground and rain, etc. Let's apply these pictures to the context, that is, to the people of God. And so it begins with the people of God receiving God's grace. Whenever you see ground and rain used symbolically, it's always the ground is people, field, in other words, and rain is always God's grace. Notice it comes from above. It comes down to earth. The ground is tilled by a farmer. And when you till ground, what do you do it for? To expect a harvest, a good harvest. But sometimes, despite the work of the farmer, despite all that good rain that falls, what happens? Sometimes land just doesn't turn out the way you expect it. It produces thorns and thistles. You don't get the crop you expected. Now, when that happens, the ground is worthless. The crops are worthless. 
What does the farmer do? Well, he burns the crop off the ground to clean the land so he can replant again, right? It's the natural process. That picture is a perfect representation of how God deals with the disobedient believer. First, he dispenses his grace to us. And the grace here is not just the grace of our salvation, but the common grace that men receive from God so that we may serve him. He dispenses that with an expectation. It comes with strings attached, so to speak. And by that, I mean his expectation is that as a slave of Christ, we serve him in the fullness of our strength for the purpose of pleasing him. It's not so that we would serve ourselves. He expects a harvest of obedience. Some believers make the most of that grace. They produce a good crop. You may be thinking back to Luke chapter 8 at this point about the sower and the seed and different plants that come up and what kind of fruit they produce, etc. You should be because it's similar in context. Some believers make the most. And when we do that, notice it says we receive a blessing. The ground that produces what it's supposed to receives a blessing from God. Or... Of course, we have an alternative. We can neglect to pursue spiritual maturity. We can fall away from God's word. We can regress in our walk and do what we please rather than what God pleases. And at that point, we are equivalent to thorns and thistles in God's economy. He's getting nothing out of the process of having given us his grace. We are useless to his purpose. And notice the writer says we're close to being cursed. Now, close in this context doesn't refer to our position before the Lord. I don't want you to think there's some kind of sliding scale. And among the believers, you have those that are really close to God and those that are down here and they're just one more mistake away from hell. No, because now you're espousing a works-based idea that somehow we keep ourselves in the Lord by our goodness. And that's a completely false understanding of Scripture. Close in this case doesn't refer to where we are positionally before the Lord. It refers to the way our life resembles unbelief. We are indistinguishable from someone who is being cursed. You might as well be the same person, at least from the outside, at least from the way the people of the world see you. You're close to being cursed in that respect. And then notice what he says, and you're burned. Now, that last point creates confusion in my experience because there's a mindset within Christianity that says anytime I hear of fire or burning, it must be a reference to the fires of hell. Certainly sometimes it is. But friends, actually, if you were to look throughout the Bible in both old and new, the most common way fire is used in the scriptures is without respect to unbelievers and without respect to hell. But rather, it's a picture of purification for the believer and of judgment, of testing. That's its most common application. In the New Testament, Paul tells us that our works will be judged through fire in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And that a believer who comes into that moment without much to show, having squandered their life of of service to God, having taken his grace and done nothing with it, brings things like hay, straw, and the like. In other words, their works are of no value, and when they're tested under God's judgment fire, they burn up. They're gone. And then Paul adds, just to make sure we don't get our theology wrong, he says, they will come through as through fire. They're not being burned in hell. They're not losing anything in terms of salvation. They're there in heaven. They're just there with nothing to show for what they had on earth to do for God. And that's not something you and I want. So the concept that the writer is explaining in this parable is very simple. The believer who falls away is close to being cursed, but isn't cursed. The believer who falls away has led an unfruitful life and has spurned the Lord's grace, and therefore they will not receive a blessing. That is, they will sacrifice the rewards that could have been theirs had they served the Lord properly. Which is all the more reason, friends, not to take that chance in the first place. Doesn't it all add up? If failing to pursue spiritual maturity leaves us vulnerable to falling away, and if falling away 
does not guarantee a second chance because you cannot be saved again. And because God is not inclined to give us chance after chance after chance to shame his son. Then we're really playing with fire when we suggest to ourselves that we can have our cake and eat it, too. We can be saved by grace and live as we please. And it'll all work out in the end because God's so good. Oh, he's good. All right. And he's just. And he's a stern master, according to the parables. And he has asked us to do as he pleases because of the grace he offered to us first. And he's good enough to offer us a blessing should we please him. But he has a limit to his patience. And he will not, according to the writer, he will not permit all of us to pursue spiritual maturity if we choose to fall away. The better course is to not bet on a future rescue, not squander the opportunities we've been given, not waste the time we have while it's still today, and to serve him with every breath that we have, knowing that we will receive a blessing. Dear Father, thank you, Father, for your grace in the face of Christ. Thank you, Father, for your word that presses us into maturity. Thank you, Father, for a reminder this morning that we should not squander what you've given. And I ask, Father, that as we've heard these things and perhaps been convicted at times in one way or another, that you might use this moment this morning as another opportunity for grace in the lives of those who may have fallen away, even in some small way, even in some moment of disobedience. Father, give us another chance. May this be that chance, Father, for we do desire to please you. And I know, Father, as we stand in your presence, as we come into the glory of the kingdom someday, we will all have at that moment a chance to look back on the lives we've led and consider what we had opportunity to do. Father, I pray you bring us into that moment with no regrets. For that lies in your power, but it also lies in our control. We ask, Father, that you would spur us forward and not let us rest in falling away. Thank you, Lord, for a church that reminds us of these things when many others fail to hear it. And Lord, I pray you'd also encourage us knowing that your light, your work is light, your burden is easy. You don't call us, Father, to, to do these things as a, a way of giving us cruel and harsh treatment. Father, you do it for it is a joy to serve you. Help us see that side of it too. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.